1: Thanks for listening to the Town Hall Review with Hugh Hewitt podcast, bringing to you the best voices on the stories and issues that matter. Helping make it all possible is the generous partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. Here's another piece I'll trust you enjoy. Joined by United States Senator Marco Rubio from the state of Florida, ranking Republican on the Senate Intelligence Committee. Good morning, Senator. Welcome back to the Hugh Hewitt Show. Hey, good morning, Uh, You've been doing yeoman's work, and I appreciate how much you're trying to keep us informed. We've got a couple of questions for you right off the bat, though. Uh, The president will not sanction Russian oil. There are only three explanations. Green fanaticism on climate change. I don't think that's it because they actually like higher oil prices. Fear of political red wave or Russia's role in Vienna. And Russia is mediating our, quote, deal, our collapse in Vienna. Is that why we're not sanctioning Russian oil?
2: Yep, bingo. I mean, that's the third one I think is a big part of it. I mean, one is I think the administration is still trying to figure out, Okay, you know, what can what can we do to sanction Russian oil without adding to the increase in in gas prices to Americans? And the other is what you said. And and by the way, there's a there's a there's a collateral and ancillary to the thing about the deal with Iran. And that is that if you lift sanctions, that means there'll be Iranian oil entering the marketplace. And, uh, and something to keep an eye on here is I think that the Russians have an economic incentive at this moment to sort of delay that deal uh, because uh, they don't. The, Russian oil is already being sold at a discount in the market, given how difficult it is to transact business and, and payment to them right now. So the last thing they want is to see oil prices go down because suddenly there's a new supplier in the marketplace. Uh, that new supplier should be us. If someone is going to be Selling more oil into the marketplace it should be america which has the capacity to do it we, we don't need the russian oil it's four percent of what we invest every day it's a lot of money to putin we could easily replace it with our own domestic supply if, if the president would allow it
1: yeah well, i had a caller today from florida i know barb was in ohio say so release the fracking and i think she's right but i want to go back to my correspondent uh, the Iranian deal is a legacy thing for the appeasers in this administration. I know Tony Blinken, nice guy, but just, he just doesn't get it. And Wendy Sherman has never gotten anything right. But the appeasement doesn't explain how the Russians are even getting to Vienna. Aren't they supposed to be prevented from going? Are they just staying there and negotiating via telephone with their, their uh, uh, order givers in the Kremlin?
2: Well, I think probably what's happening is that exceptions are being made for diplomatic travel. Um, so that diplomats can either leave places or get to places. Although it's interesting, Lavrov, the other day, I think it was in, in Geneva, could not attend the uh, human right, the fake UN human rights. Yeah. He had to do it by video conference. You couldn't get there. But my sense is, I don't know the answer to that, but I think my sense is that they are probably creating an exemption for what they, you know, term diplomatic travel.
1: Okay, last question on Vienna. Russia is crucial to any deal because they buy the spent fuel. How are they going to pay for this? stuff? Russia doesn't have any money now. And we banned, are they going to send it direct to Iran? And, and by the way, my correspondent is one of the best reporters in D.C. And they're mystified. They follow this very, very closely. How does How does Russia have any role left to play in the Vienna deal, which we shouldn't be involved in? But even if it was a good deal, they couldn't pay for what they're supposed to do.
2: Yeah, it's possible they're going to pay uh, with oil, in essence, uh, the, you know, as a barter type deal, um, and and or use Iran as a as a way to uh, to access the market, you know, to have, sell it through them and then have the transaction happen. I'm, you know, Russia is probably working overtime right now to establish an alternative to Swift and other payment systems. I mean, given enough time, governments figure out loopholes and ways around restrictions. I mean, it still doesn't solve their problem. I mean, 40, 40 almost half their foreign reserves. Something's been underreported, but it's a, I don't know if it's 45 percent of what it is, but with Japan joining, over half of, close to half of Russia's uh, national reserves are frozen in, in foreign bank accounts, which is, uh, which is a big problem. Russia's got a lot, I mean, they're in, that economy is in a complete death spiral.
1: You know, there is a term for what Putin provides to the oligarchs, the roof. It's in Russian. I can't say it. The roof is about to fall in if we push a little bit harder. Are there anti-Putin elements at work within the Russian regime which could bring him down, Senator Rubio?
2: Yeah, I mean, we wouldn't have a lot of insight into that, to be honest with you. Those kinds of things, generally, when there is some sort of an insider move on a guy, you don't know it till after it's happened. If it's successful, if, you, if we know about it, then it's not going to be successful, because, I mean, Putin knows about it. But, but let me say a couple things about it. The first is, um, uh, you know, it's not that these guys, some of them are his friends, but the, it's not like these people are, are buddies. Uh, Putin, you know, generally has disdain the, the for these uh, the oligarchs and so forth, but – they're like the feudal lords that prop up a monarch, you know? They're like uh they're they're like these uh princes that he allows to exist in exchange for their help or loyalty. So if he tells them you know, they've all if he tells them that I need your company to do this for me as an element of statecraft, they have to comply with his orders because without that they'll be charged with you know some corruption charges and they'll be in jail the rest of their lives. So they, they're tools that he uses for statecraft. But, um, you know, he'll easily replace an oligarch if need be. That's been that, the history of it.
1: Yeah, they're off with their head. All my smart questions, by the way, are coming from Brett Baer. That's who I'm talking with offline. He just said, don't worry, don't disguise it. So Brett is, he's all over this. And we're talking about the Iran deal. Because honestly, Senator, it doesn't make a lick of sense. What, what is driving the appeasement of Blinken and Sherman? I don't actually think the president is running that show. I think that's a Blinken-Sherman show. What do you think?
2: Well, I think part of it is that it is a legacy issue from the Obama administration. A lot of the people involved in this were involved in that. And it was one of the big things that Obama's administration bragged about. And uh, But there's a lot of danger embedded in it. Now, I mean, there, isn't, there is no deal that's going to appease either – I mean, one of the things that's really damaged the U.S.-Saudi relationship – has been uh, how aggressively they pursued this. I think that's going to get even worse now. I think there's another element we haven't talked about here. There are a lot of countries around the world, I would imagine, right now watching what's being done to Ukraine and saying to themselves, you know, if they wouldn't have gotten rid of their nuclear weapons or if they had just kept a few, this would not be happening.
1: I think, absolutely.
2: I I mean, mean, if you're Saudi Arabia now, I mean, look, I think if we pull back from all of this and just look at it, not the trees, but the entire forest, We are entering an era now where there are three countries that are arguing that that they should be the dominant regional powers and those around them need to be tributary vassal states. Iran – in the Muslim world, particularly the Middle East, and that includes their influence in Syria, Lebanon, increasingly Iraq, Bahrain, where they, want, they don't have the influence, but they want it, um, places like that. The other is, of course, Russia and Eastern Europe, and then China and the Asia-Pacific region. And their fundamental argument is powerful countries should be allowed to dominate their neighbors and, and direct what happens in their region. And um, and in the case of Iran, there are not just, you know, ethnic differences between, you know, Arab countries coming under the rule of a Persian country, but... Uh, sectarian ones as well. These are from predominantly Sunni countries, and then you have a Shia hegemon or attempted hegemon who's trying to impose on them. And so these countries in the region are going to push back. I mean, if there is an Iranian weapon or an Iranian capability, there is no doubt in my mind that if there's a Shia bomb, there will be a Sunni bomb at some point, and and it won't be hard to get. To it,
1: them. Yeah, it's just a replay of uh, Pakistan and India. They have to do it to to hold off their mortal enemy. Let me ask a couple of quick, specific questions, Senator. Uh, Has Zelensky actually avoided, to your knowledge, three assassination attempts? Are they actually trying to hit him with specificity?
2: Yeah, I don't know if it's three or five or one or none, but I can tell you that the Russians have a long time, uh, for a long time now, have had deep penetrations into the Ukrainian defense defense systems and, and, and security. And so obviously that's concerning. And and to get to Zelensky, a lot of people think, well, they could shoot the guy. I mean, they could. They could also poison him. I mean, there's all kinds of things they can do. So so obviously there's always concern about that because the Russians have invested many, many years into penetrating uh, the Ukrainian government and having assets in there. And and uh, so I don't know how, how many attempts there have been made or so forth, but I can certainly tell you that uh, if the Russians want to kill him and, and if they have a chance to do so, uh, they will, and, uh, and and that they'll keep trying to, because eliminating Zelensky uh, from a strategic standpoint is, is probably uh, in Putin's mind uh, one of the you know most effective things he can do right now.
1: Now, the second report just came out this hour from NBC that the U.S. is providing some intelligence to Ukraine, but not real-time targeting, for fear of being considered a co-belligerent. True or false?
2: It's a complicated question, and uh, and and I, I struggle to talk about it publicly because I'm not quite sure how to structure it in a way that I, you know, someone could say I'm not giving up something. I also don't think we should be telegraphing what we're doing publicly in that regard uh, to the Russians. That said, um, I saw what Jen Psaki said yesterday. Um, it is a truthy answer, meaning there are elements of truth to it, but not. It doesn't capture the full complexity. Suffice it. Let me just put it to you this way. Uh, there are both Republicans and Democrats who are actively working and pushing now because we think the administration can do more and be more effective than uh, in that regard than what it's doing right now. And, and there's some confusion as well about what they're doing right now. And we're trying to get to the bottom of it and work through it. And hopefully we'll make some progress.
1: Last question, Senator Rubio. Everybody in Florida, more than any other American, remembers 1962 and the Cuban Missile Crisis.
2: Are we at
1: that level of risk in your view? Are we close to going? Are we in September 1962 or October 1962?
2: Well, I don't know. These things are not exactly comparable, but I can tell you that there is great danger for two reasons. The first is you now have a, you know, 70 percent of the Russian military power is active and engaged and deployed very close to NATO forces. So the risk of miscalculation or, you know, a lot of the, for example, these countries are now providing planes and to uh, to ukraine so it would not take much for a russian anti-air element to confuse a romanian jet or a polish jet with maybe one from ukraine and shoot it down and suddenly you've got a conflict the other is you know at some point putin is going to start targeting uh, these supply convoys like all these things that are being provided to ukraine they have to be driven in and at some point he's going to start bombing these convoys and uh so you worry about you know what could happen there i mean uh, the border isn't as easy to see from the air as it is from the ground, um, so there's danger there. And then the third is Putin's not the same guy he was five years ago. And what I mean by that is that his risk calculus is not the same. There are risks he's willing to take now uh, that he wasn't willing to take a few years ago. And um, and a lot of the people running this whole thing and reacting to it, I don't think fully appreciate it. Um, he's he's going to. This guy is not going to accept any outcome. Uh, He would rather have World War III than be humiliated or appear to have been backing down to the West. And I think that poses real dangers.
1: Wow, that's sobering. Senator Marco Rubio, thank you for joining us. Keep coming back. I appreciate the work you're doing every day to keep the American public informed on this. Thanks for listening to the Town Hall Review. Our program is coming today in partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy.